chart is a whole column uh, for uh, con- acts contextually for review. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this with you, although it's, you'll see it written when you get the chart you know, in your hands. But what I do want to do is focus on one particular point one more time, and that is this outline that's given to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because that is probably one of the most important points to um, uh, helping you kind of segmentize, basically, Acts, to see how Acts breaks down into these three major segments in, in as far as the segment division is concerned. That's one of the most important ones. It also helps to clarify ever so slightly the understanding of this one subject of tongues, which is brought up in this particular book. It's an issue that, in the church on the whole, um, has become rather divisive, Right through and that quite honestly, because of misunderstanding, there are some churches which have founded their whole doctrine based on a misunderstanding. So I want to just make sure that we at least touch on this a little bit. Um, I have scheduled a meeting to pa- to speak with Pastor Rob when he returns. I was supposed to meet with him this last week, but um, he's gone, as you all know, with with a friend who's uh, had a very serious accident. Um, so when he returns, he and I will have a conversation. I want to just give you a heads up so you all can be thinking on this. The subject of these sign gifts, which are presented so heavily in the book of Acts, um, obviously we are not doing a study right now on spiritual gifts. I do believe in order to fully understand what we are observing in the book of Acts concerning the sign gifts, um, good morning, Tom. Um, I want it. I want us to understand that that particular subject matter needs to first be laid down with the foundation of doctrines concerning spiritual gifts, right? And once you have that, then you come back into the book of Acts and restudy the whole book of Acts through that filter. Then you will better understand what's going on in the book of Acts. But just to give you a little bit of insight and a little, I, I guess I want to tantalize your thinking a little bit about this subject of sign gifts that we're seeing and observing in the book of Acts so that you can be thinking on this. So this is just kind of like a heads up thing. And, um, and it's, and my doing this precedes my conversation with Pastor Rob, which when he returns, we will do it yet. And I want to make sure that he and I are together on full understanding of this and how, um, uh, he and I together can maybe iron out anything that I'm missing yet in this bigger picture. But I want to show you something that I learned. This was really interesting. I have these books. Um, Diane, you took one of these home, the lo- one of these lo- Lockery, L-O-C-K-Y-E-R, Lockyer. Is that how it's pronounced? Does anybody know? I've always called them Lockyer, but it's Locky, Lockyer. Anyway, all the miracles of the Bible is this one. Okay, the last one um, was about all the doctrines of the Bible. And we looked at the doctrines about who is the Holy Spirit and who is, what, and particularly in that one, we looked in to see what are the doctrines concerning the church. Because in the book of Acts, since it's a, it's a teaching on the uh, establishment of the church and all its various doctrines, that particular book is really insightful because you can, if you can stay awake while you're reading it, it's very dry. It's very heavy reading, but um, it it brings up points that you probably just wouldn't even think of because we're not that big a thinker. Uh, do you guys remember uh, Bruce Hurt? 
Bruce is one of those guys that could write doc- these commentary books. I mean, he is one of those. He, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant when you talk with him. He is filled with so much knowledge. Um, it, that kind, this guy here, this lock, Lockyer, he reminds me of Bruce Hurt when I'm looking at it. Anyway, L-O-C-K-Y-E-R, Lockyer. Is that correct? I'm, I know, it's <laughs> Lockyer. Okay, I've never heard anybody really quote him much, but he's, I think he's really good, and I haven't seen anything in here that raises eyebrows for me. Um, okay, so here's what I want to show you. This is just one of those visual demonstrations that's going to blow you away. Um, in this book, he breaks down the idea of, of sign gifts, miracles, basically, that are demonstrated through Scripture into categories. The first category is all the miracles that you see in the Old Testament. It constitutes about half of the book, okay? So the majority of the recorded miracles in the scripture are Old Testament, right? Okay, makes sense, right? The cool thing is then the next one that's very large, you can see how large it is in comparison to the book in totality, right? These are the miracles of guess where? Jesus in the Gospels, okay? Now, the next one is, the, is in the epistles. Do you see that? It's one page. Miracles that are recorded in the epistles. And in here, by the way, if you read through this, it's miracles of Christ's resurrection, which are mentioned, It's the miracles of the ascension, which are mentioned. It's the miracle of the second advent, which is mentioned. It's the miracles at Pentecost, which are mentioned. In other words, they're cross-references in the epistles. There are no other, other than in the book of Acts, which we just talked about. Hold on, let me do the book of Acts. I did that one, right? Did I do that one for you, the book of Acts? Okay, let me show you Acts, because it's pretty cool. Here's the book of Acts. It's a pretty hefty, it's not as big as the, as the section on the, the New Testament, right, or on the um, Jesus' miracles, but Acts runs a second close to the, uh, what's recorded in the book uh, of the Gospels concerning Jesus. So first is the biggest section is on Jesus. The next one, the biggest section is going to be found in the book of Acts where we're seeing all these miracles, right? So, so just for fun, tell me why you think that might be that there would be so many miracles about Jesus and so many miracles in, written in the book of Acts, but one page, and they're all references to other places in the epistles. And by the way, the very last one is the, is the apocalyptic miracles that are going to happen occur in the, um, uh, in the book of Revelation, and it's like four or five pages. It's not very many, three or four or five, maybe, teeny-weeny. So what do you think is the reason for that? Well, uh, they didn't have the Word of God. They didn't have the written Word. Okay. And the people believed that a sign that broke the, that violated the natural laws meant God is in there. There you go. That is a really good observation, that 
the whole purpose, and we have said this over and over in our class, right, that the purpose for the signs was to show that God was in it, right? Okay. Um, so why do you think that if, the, if, if in the book of Acts, what is the book of Acts written for? What is its design purpose? What is the purpose of that writing? It's the birthing of the church, which is the birthing of something brand new, right? So does it make sense to us that Acts would have so many miracles because there was a need for miracles to be seen to confirm that God was in something, correct? That it was of God, right? A couple of places as we've gone along through the book of Acts, we've seen references where people, even outside of the church, like the the, the church council leaders have said, you know, if you try to fight against this and it's really from the Lord, you're not going to, you're, you know, you're not even going to, yes, go ahead. I was just going to tell you that the, the book of Acts is really, if you look at Luke and Acts together, it's showing that the same spirit That's exactly right. And actually, this is exactly what we discerned early on when we first started doing the book of Acts, where we looked at how these miracles accompanied Jesus, and in the same way, miracles accompany the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in both places, then what we see is the confirmation of God being in both Jesus and being witnessed through the Holy Spirit, then are being, they're being confirmed by these miracles. Now, the other thing is, you got to consider is that if the whole, if these miracles and signs had not occurred when the Holy Spirit fell, how would there be confirmation that the Holy Spirit fell? Could, can we see the Holy Spirit? Would there have been any other way to know for sure that the Holy Spirit had fallen? I mean, I mean, I know eventually we're going to see bearing fruit in it, but is there any visible way of knowing uh, at that moment that the Holy Spirit had fallen, at that moment. Why would, do you think it was an important thing then for there to be a sign? And was there a, was there a forewarning or a prophecy that told us that this would happen? That's right. Joel chapter 2, right? So in Joel, Joel said that in that day when the Spirit falls, that you're your sons and your daughters will prophesy, they will dream dreams, right? And and they will speak with these tongues. And so when the Spirit fell, then we had the speaking in tongues. Okay, so I wanted to just share that as a little, like, tantalizing thing for you. Um, you missed it, but what we were talking about is in here is how... Mir- this is a book, All the Miracles of the Bible, and in here it shows you the breakdown of how many miracles there are in the Old Testament, how many miracles there are with when Jesus came, how many miracles there are with the, with the, falling, with the um, coming of the Holy Spirit and the birthing of the church, how many miracles there are with uh, the apocalypse when it occurs at the end of the age, and then the one page that's given to us on miracles which occur in all the other epistles, and I just and I want you to see that because and, and consider that because um, I think it's going to help factor in when you start to consider the importance of miracles because we can get the misconception by studying Acts that miracles should be occurring all the time in the church, right? Is it, can't you see how that might be a, 
easily misconstrued by studying Acts and the birthing of the church. If you don't, if you don't lay it in its proper perspective and compare it then to the rest of the New Testament epistles, you may misunderstand the purpose of sign gifts. Okay. Boy, did they! Right. Right. And do we still have that today? Yeah, we still have that problem today. And so the solution to that is really the exact same solution which Paul uh, takes care of for us. Why does Paul write so many of these epistles? What do you think the purpose is for him writing all these things? We went through Ephesians yesterday in our ABF. Why did he write Ephesians? That's right. And in Ephesians in particular, what was the problem he addresses there? Do you remember from yesterday? Jews and Gentiles not recognizing that they're one body, right? That it's the church, the collective church. Our, our guest teacher that's in our classroom is actually addressing the subject of just trying to um, retrain the mind of the American believer who does not see us as a collective whole, but really sees salvation as an individual thing, which it is. I mean, we enter into it individually, right? But then once we enter into it individually, we don't see ourselves as a part of the whole so much because America is all about individualism, right? We're all about being uh, independent thinkers and not bounded by the collective whole. But the truth is, what is salvation by definition? What is it? What is it? Yeah, thank you, Susan. Oh, I know. See, the all, in my classroom, the the only answer, if you're not sure, is covenant. Right? It's covenant. And since, and if it's a covenant, when when you come into covenant with Jesus, what happens? To become one. And if I become one with Jesus, and then you become one with Jesus, what does that make us? All one with Jesus, right? So that's what our guest uh, teacher in our ABF is trying to teach us, is this oneness with the, what that the church should understand and should embrace rather than push away from. That we have a responsibility to one another. We have, we have a, a great lacking in America of understanding how the body should be working together. And I think it's really great because what he's talking about in, in the, our ABF really highlights a lot of the things that we're studying here in the book of Acts as we watch the birth of the church. And so um, let's go back now. Did, did I see a hand somewhere almost? I thought I saw one. Okay. Let, let me go back here. Let's start, though, by just addressing the one subject, which is the outline then of this book also, so that we remember the outline of the Acts. It starts uh, with where? Where is our major key verse for Acts that gives us our outline? One eight. That's right. That's one that you should have memorized. One eight, and in Acts one eight, we see basically it breaks down to telling us that they will be witnesses. Right? Will be my witnesses. And then where? Where is it? One where? Jerusalem. Where else? And 
uttermost parts parts of the earth, right? Now, where did we see then uh, the fact that these three things occurred? Then we see then the falling of the Holy Spirit and the, the basically the bringing into this, thing, this new entity, this thing called the church, these three groups that are outlined for us here, right? So where does the first one occur? When do we see Jerusalem, the Jews, receiving the Holy Spirit? At Pentecost in chapter what? Chapter 2. So we're seeing chapter 2, we see the Jews, right? Where do we see the next group come in? What chapter and who are they? Samaritans. The Samaritans. And what chapter are we in? Eight. Eight. I put 1044. Why did I do that? Look on my... No, they, that's not... Tell okay, chapter 8, which is Gentiles. This is, this is Cornelius, Right. Okay, then that's not the one we want. We don't want eight. Yes, where is, where does the, where do you see the gift of the sign of tongues to affirm that the gift has now moved forward to this next category in this outline? With Peter and Cornelius in which chapter? Ten, right? Chapter 10, okay, I think it is 10. It's chapter 10, verse 44 to 5 to 5. Go in there, look at that. Chapter 10. Yeah, you were close though. You were right on. I mean, look, if you're off by one chapter, that is pretty good, guys. How many people know that much even? So you're doing great. Okay, so in chapter 10, what we see then is the falling of the Spirit there also. And what happens when the Spirit falls? What does it say in those two verses, 44 and 45? Somebody read it out loud. Okay, read it. Okay, so for, so let's put on here 44 to 46 gives us that. So what we see are tongues as a witness, right? Now, in, you're right that Philip gets it and it begins to go out to the other places prior, but there was no uh, registered mark of that Holy Spirit witness, which was through the sign of tongues. We see the sign of tongues in Jerusalem in chapter 2. Now we see the sign of tongues in chapter 10, right? That when, that when it gets to the Gentiles. And then what happens in Ephesus? And what chapter was that? Yes. Good guess, Craig. <laughs> 19 verses 5. Uh, actually, it's 1 through 5 or 6 right in there. But go into chapter 19 and look at those first five verses and tell me what you see there. What happened to these 12 men? They, they, they had already been previously baptized by John the Baptist. Yeah. Okay, and what happened when they received the Holy Spirit? They spoke in tongues. And then in that same chapter, if you move on down to verse 10, then what does it say about Paul's work there in Ephesus? There you go. All in Asia heard the word of God. 
both Jews and Gentiles. So here we see, see a, a third mention of the tongues as a witness and that every t- and the three times that tongues are a witness to salvation actually gives us the outline to our our book in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jerusalem all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth isn't that awesome so it, that's a really good thing just to kind of mentally know that this is how the book falls out and these are the the purposes for tongues being mentioned the three times they are mentioned in this book called Acts the birthing of the church. To me, I think that also, or may, and maybe I'm crazy, but do you think this helps maybe clarify or refine a little bit better your understanding of why tongues is even mentioned in the book of Acts? Does that help you guys some? Say, okay, now I can see there's an outline to this. It's associated with these three uh, points which... Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. You shall be my witnesses in these three places. And then in the very first one that occurs, which is in uh, chapter 2, he says, and these things will happen in the last days. Joel, these fulfill the word of, of, of the prophets through Joel. Yes. Yes. And you see that there's nothing more bolder than tongues, personally, because, you know, it's one of those things that you see here yes. over and over again, but it's part of that pattern of the Holy Spirit. It is right. Yes, okay. Now, that is a good point that you bring up, too, by the way. And it is one thing that Pastor Rob actually did say to me when we chatted briefly. Um, he said, when I said to him, I mentioned him that that it was accompanied by the gifts of tongues, and he kept correcting me as we were talking, and I, I, I was getting tickled because I was realizing that he apparently has a lot of problem with people not understanding this point. What does it mean when in the Acts it says they spoke in tongues? How do you define the word tongues? Language. Languages. That's exactly right. They were languages that are known in the world but unknown to the one that is speaking. And that's right. And although we are not doing a spiritual gifts um, study, what you also have to understand is there must be an interpretation made available. If there's not someone who understands in the room, then your babbling is simply that. And that's what Paul addresses later when he talks about babbling in a sounding gong, right? Because of what value is it if you speak in tongues and nobody understands? Is anyone edified? Okay, the answer is absolutely no. Of course not. If you're just babbling, how does it edify the body? What is the purpose for spiritual gifts? To edify the body. That's right, and to build it up. Okay, so... With those couple of points, that kind of opens up or lays out for us another way of looking at the layout of Acts in its context. We see three major divisions that occur. Each one of these points that he said, Jerusalem, all Judeans, uttermost parts of the earth, would hear the gospel and would receive the spirit and would enter into this new thing called the covenant of the church. And each one of those three points are marked by the gift of tongues as a sign. Okay, and this sign was prophesied. You know, the, the, in, in uh, Acts 2, when um, the apostles broke out in tongues, it was for the 
That's right. It was actually, it had a couple of purposes. Yeah, that was one of them was so that the other people who were there from other places would see this and this miraculous thing that they were doing. Because what did they think about them when they started speaking in tongues? What did they say of them? You guys are drunk. And they're going, no, it's nine in the morning. We're not drunk, right? No, except that it establishes what you should now know about the purpose of the tongues. That very, what do we say about the first use of anything in scripture is its most what? Clearly defined understanding, correct? So here we see the first use of of the gift of tongues in the New Testament in the birthing of the church. And therefore you can carry those factors or those qualities, right? Those markers then forward into each of the next two places. Why in, 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 um, um, with the centurion in, um, yeah, but what city was he in? Caesarea, thank you. <laughs> when, why in Caesarea did that, this happen again? For the same reason it happened the first time. It was a marker to say the Holy Spirit had fallen. It fulfilled this, the prophecy which had been made to them, known to them previously to give an assurance that, number one, God was in this thing which they were witnessing, number one, and number two, that this, this uh, fulfilled the fact that God was bringing this new covenant into place, right? That the birthing of this new thing called the church was happening. So how would you respond to someone who took the position that speaking in tongues would be evidence of the Holy Spirit falling on that individual? Well, my question would be, when they spoke in tongues, was someone else edified? Did anyone else come into faith, and was there an interpreter there? And if their answer is no, no, and no, then I would say, I don't know what they were doing there. I can't identify that kind of tongues speaking because it doesn't fall in line with what we know about the spiritual gift of tongues. Okay? Well, because they will understand the language because it's a known language. It's not a babbling. It's... Spanish, it's French, it's German, it's Norwegian, it's, you see what I'm saying? Huh? And in the, go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at what it says. They heard them in their own language, the Perithians, the, I mean, it names all the, the different places they were from, and that's the language that they were speaking, and they were hearing them in their own language. But if it's the babbling, and then somebody else... Then you have to, well... Uh, if it's a babbling and it's not a known language, then it's not a true speaking in gift uh, in tongues. It's a false one. Groanings. Then it's those groanings that Paul talks about, which are of no value op- in operation in the in the collective church as the whole. The purpose for gifts is quite honestly. One of my friends gave it the best definition I've ever heard. It is evangelism in a foreign language. That's what its purpose is. And in the book of Acts, we see that. That every time the Spirit fell, then they spoke. What did they speak? The mighty wonders of God. So if what was spoken was truths about what God had done either in history or who he was or 
uh, maybe about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but they're speaking these things in a language that was known, and then there's a translator, a person who can interpret that. And that's exactly what happened. Did you notice the people from the audience yelled back and said, hey, we're hearing them. They're speaking our language. There's your interpretation. Okay, so that's how it's supposed to operate. Okay, so without going into a spiritual gifts class this morning, I just want... Oh, yeah, when are we going to have that class? That's a good one, isn't it? Um, I can tell you this. The last time I taught it, it was a 12-week course, um, and I decided it should be 24. Because every week's lesson was so, there was so much cross-referencing and research to do. You drop in here, you drop in here, you drop in here. What you do is, what, what they do in that particular study is they give you demonstrations of of various people in scripture who exercise those gifts. So you're able to go in and you look at some of the Old Testament people and New Testament people exercising these various gifts like the prophet, the teacher, the whatever, and you get to see that gift being exercised, right? One of the things we would do is drop into Acts when it comes to the gifts of signs and wonders and miracles and tongues, right? So I'm bringing this up today just to say this is one more subject. We've only got two weeks left. And it's a, it's a hot subject. It's a hard subject to, to totally uh, comprehend in one swoop. We won't be able to do it at all here. We would need to stop, do a spiritual gift study, and then come back to Acts and then observe what we're seeing in here to better clarify. But this is the wonderful thing about doing precept studies. It is precept upon precept right? It's a little here and a little there, as Kay says. And little by little, you begin to build your foundation of understanding, and then you begin to add new little pieces to your plate, and in time, you get the whole. You can kind of... I'm still learning. There are still things I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's just one of those amazing miracles about God's Word. You never can learn it all. Uh, and yet, there's enough foundation eventually that, that you can begin to take new things in and go, oh, I know where this fits because you've already studied this subject or that. So we've done a lot of studies together over these last 10 or 12 years that we've all been together. And little by little, we're be- aren't we beginning to? I mean, look at how many times we've made reference even in the book of Acts back to Ezekiel of all things, right? So... It is amazing how they all manage to fit together. When we move into Thessalonians, we're going to think back on on Acts. This week in our ABF, when our our guest speaker was speaking out of Ephesians, I immediately went to Acts and went, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly when it was written, and I know exactly why it was written. It was amazing. Why? Because I've laid the foundation of insight on the book of Acts at this point. I don't have it all figured out, but I got a lot of it figured out. And I hope you all feel the same way at this point, right? You got a pretty good grip on it. So this outline, I think, is one of those fundamental pieces that if it's not been clarified in your mind yet, I want you to get it clarified so that you see a good segment division in the book of Acts, these three segments of how the gospel will spread. It's stated for us in Acts chapter 1. It will do in these three things. And each of these three points then are marked by the sign of tongues as a witness, which was prophesied earlier in history. So now it was fulfilled, and what we see is the birthing of a church witnessed by God's mighty works. 
right? By a, a mighty act of God. All right. We also know that, by the way, spiritual gifts are just that. They are miracle. They are a, a gift or, or of a miracle that they're sp- specifically something that God gives you. We know, for instance, um, um, we know a lot of people who are school teachers, but are they gifted biblical teachers? Not always, right? Unless God gave them the spiritual gift of teaching that doesn't, just because they're a school teacher does not necessarily make them a good Bible teacher. So you got to clarify that the fact that the spiritual gifts are a gift from the spirit. And in Corinthians in particular, it says that he places us in the body as he so desires, right? And it's his choice, not our choice. So you can't pray for a gift to receive it. You receive the gift at your spiritual birth. God chooses who and what he will use you for. Have you seen that in the life of Paul? Was Paul right away by Jesus says, go here, go to Damascus, go meet this man. He's going to tell you, and I, want, and I will tell you all the things that you must do for me. Right? Have we not seen that in the book of Acts? So Paul, and Paul refers back to that on a regular basis about the fact that basically he knows what his journey is about because God's already revealed it to him and has shown him that he is going to be a witness, that he is going to suffer persecution for, for him. And in the case of our week, our week study this week, even that his journey was eventually going to take him right back to, to Jerusalem where he would be arrested, and he knew this. One of the ways he, he knew it was, again, by another sign gift of a prophet. Who was the prophet? Agabus and Agabus meets Paul as he's on this journey home and we see all these people saying no don't go no don't go and Agabus comes and says by the way what's going to happen you're yeah he takes the belt off of Paul wraps his own legs and he says in this way you shall you shall be bound at Jerusalem now would that not encourage you to want to go back to Jerusalem yay let's hurry (laughs) amazing yes Mm-hmm. He said, um, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That's exactly So far, we've seen Gentiles and sons of Israel. That's right. The kings are coming next week. That's right. They were God's will. And so part of our lesson this week was to look at Paul's journey and view it through the perspective of him walking according to the Spirit. You know, seeing the Holy Spirit. Now, we have seen this a lot in the book of Acts where these various uh, key players in here, Peter and uh, various other apostles, and and now Paul, because we're focusing a lot on him, but that the Spirit would either forbid them to go to certain places or he would, uh, uh, basically, he swifted Philip away. I mean, he just whisked him away. All of a sudden, he was there. Well, that was another kind of an incognito way of saying the Spirit led him to go to this place very quickly. He had an urgency. The Spirit must have spoken to him in some kind of a of a, of a way through prayer. And he, when he was done with what he was doing there, man, he hurried on to that next place. He, he was on an assignment. The Spirit said, get there. Just like Peter, when he was told, don't be hesitant to go to Cornelius and to the Gentiles. I'm sending you. Go with them. 
right? So he gets down and it says, and he goes immediately, right? He goes right away. So this is what we see a lot in the book of Acts is how the spirit is moving people and causing them to go. And how is it that they're able to go? And Paul, how is it that Paul was able to go? Knowing that, that, uh, bondage and, and, um, suffering awaited him. And yet what does he do? He goes, he goes. All right. So let's get on with looking at this on the whole. Okay. So this is one of the major things. Um, I wanted to, in Joel two, I just want to read it to you real quick because the idea of the tongues being as a witness being prophesied by Joel, it says, and it shall be in the last day, God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Now we've seen all those things in the book of Acts so far. Absolutely. And even on my bond slaves, both men and women, in other words, not just Jews, but what? Gentiles. Anyone who comes into this relationship with Jesus, they will all do that. In those days, I will pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Um, We had a lot of major subjects come up in, in Acts so far. I just want to list a few just to as our review without going into all the other stuff. What are some major subjects that you've seen that you have found interesting even and that maybe have helped you to understand the, the church better? Okay, absolutely. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So one of the things we talked about were that in here analytically on the whole, not just the Holy Spirit, but we also see a lot of insight about who God is and who Jesus is as well, right? But you're right. The most dominant one is the Holy Spirit. But what we are seeing in the book of Acts on the whole are these doctrines of um, the three entities of the tri- of our triune God and how each one of them relate now, what their role is in relationship to this new entity called the church, right? Because it is dis- it's a distinguished new thing, and it's a slightly different from the way God related to the Old Testament, right? To the church in the Old Testament. Now, in the new, in particular, Jesus appears, and he had not appeared in the old, although he came in, uh, what do they call theophany presentation? Yeah. Um, in these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, and he does some leading of, of them uh, in the Old Testament through the wilderness and so forth. He appears to Abraham at one point. But aside from that, we have the reality of Jesus in the new. So this is a new role. And when he comes and he accomplishes this new thing in the book of Acts, it declares to us that this is the most declarative thing that must be the message of this new thing called the church, right? What are some of the, the, what would you say are the three or four most important things if you're going to give the gospel that Acts is stressing about Jesus? 
if you're going to give the gospel about Jesus, what, what must be included at some point? There you go. He was, he was dead. He was and buried. He rose. And he, and he also appeared to many witnesses, right? His death, burial, and resurrection is essential, right? All right. So the, these doctrines of God himself are, have come up heavily in this book. What else? What other subjects have you seen? Okay, yeah. Has that have been helpful to you to see these things demonstrated in Scripture so that you now see how the church is actually supposed to be functioning? And now you can go to, to evaluate your own, your own church. One of the things that we talked about before is my daughter going through Dallas Theological Seminary right now, this was one of her last classes that was assigned to her, was to evaluate her church. And is her church measuring up in these ways? And she had to go through all these steps. And so I had listed all those things. Are they teaching sound biblical doctrine? Are they, how is the church leadership and structure uh, in relationship to what's in Acts? What, how is church discipline to be handled? And does your church do it accordingly to what the scripture shows us? What about evangelism? And one of the things I think is cool about evangelism is uh, we've learned a lot about tactics, haven't we? What kind of things have you learned about evangelism? It's another major subject. Yeah, know your audience. So each time the gospel has been demonstrated to us in its presentation, it's like they, they, they went right to the heart of that individual audience's problem or need, right? And they were able to speak off of it. One of the most interesting ones is when Paul goes to Ephesus, right? Who does he address at Ephesus? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Athens. Did I say Ephesus? I'm sorry. Yeah, Athens. Yeah, those fellows, Stoics and the Epicureans, right? And so what does he do? He, he grabs from their own uh, poets a man that is influential and respected. He makes a quote from him and then springboards off that right into the gospel, doesn't he? He also had been walking about in the city and he see that they worship many gods, and they have even an unknown God. He says, let me tell you about an unknown God, right, that you don't know, and let me call him by name. And then he, and he brings the gospel message and speaks of there being one God who created all things, and he doesn't live in temples. And that, to me, became such a profound teaching when I was standing at um, uh, Athens myself on vacation, in the midst of the ruins of all these temples all around you, and you think of this verse where he says, and he's a God that does not dwell in temples made by hands. And you've got to think of the, of the profoundness of that statement to the audience at that moment who was sitting in the midst of all these temples made by hands. And the, the message was great. So the tactics that were used and demonstrated to us are great examples of, of really good evangelism. So we have the Holy Spirit, we have evangelism. Yes? At the risk of being facetious, we also have, um, as another subject, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, particularly Peter and, and uh, Paul. Okay, so miracles? Well, or? they're not just their miracles, but their, you know, what they did and how they took the gospel and how they presented it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. But, I mean, we see 
Okay, so I'm just going to kind of rewrite this and call it just the church building itself, right? The church building of it. Through the uh, apostles. Huh? Is that? Okay. Also, oh my goodness, yes. I mean, that... The response in evangelism, so that might fall under the evangelism, which, which could be in various responses, right? And so what do we learn when we've looked at Acts about the various kinds of responses to evangelism? And how does that help us? Yeah. It is not about how well you even do it or don't do it. As a matter of fact, one of the things that's interesting is this week... Paul, uh, Paul is trying to give his testimony, and he doesn't get very far into it, and they cut him off, right? And they get all up in arms because he mentioned that God had sent him to the Gentiles, right? And so the, the, he didn't even get to finish his, his testimony to them. He only gets as far as that one point. Um, he would have gone on and spoken more about what? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but he didn't get to get quite that far, right? Um, That's exactly right. No, I'm not interested. Exactly. It almost makes you say, you know, there, you really probably should say, are you interested? Do you want to hear? Because at least rather than land blasting them and making them feel angered and resentful, if you, if you take opportunity and say, you know what, I, it's kind of like what Paul did at, at um, Athens where he said, you know, you, you worship an unknown God. Let me tell you about a God that I know, right? And so he, he, that actually opened the door, and they either were interested or they could, or they could have said, I don't want to hear, and they walk away, right? But he, he actually stayed there. Okay, there's another thing, another couple of subjects. One is baptism. We talked about baptism and expounded it a little bit more, even beyond the curriculum that was given to us. What have we learned about baptism um, in the New Testament and in the Old through this study? There's dipping and there's pickling, right? Okay. So there's getting wet, and then there's pickling by the Holy Spirit. Both are called baptisms. And you have to discern through the text which is speaking of, correct? How, what did the Jews, or how did the Jews use baptism, water baptism, in the Old Testament? Was it something that they did? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what we came to learn by examining it a little more carefully was, you know, one of the major things that they did use it for was the change of status, which is what we're actually seeing in the book of Acts. Often he said, be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So he wasn't saying that, that you have to do a work in order to receive something by grace, was he? But rather, in Acts 2, verse 38, what is he saying there? To be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. What was he saying now that you understand baptism? Uh, the technique, or not the techniques, the um, traditions of, of it. What was its purpose? If you're... Okay, how significant is that at this time in history for a Jewish person who's under the law of Moses 
to now step into a baptismal pool and say, now I'm identifying myself where? In Jesus Christ. That is quite significant. Can you now see why he says, be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit? What is he actually saying to them in that moment? You must be willing to do what? Call on me. Call my name, right? Identify, yes, repent. And, we, and that was a whole, no, repentance is another whole subject we can get into. It might fall under evangelism, but the subject of, let's put baptism. Let's put repentance. Because I did a whole lesson just on repentance one week, Right? To help us understand the, the importance of repentance in salvation. And that therefore, when he says in, or early in Acts, he says, he, uh, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That's how it's, it's phrased. So words, he's both Lord and Master. He isn't one or the other. He is both. So if he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. That's what Acts teaches us. And we see that very clearly through the book of Acts in the idea of repentance and that therefore, if in fact you have received the Holy Spirit, there will be a transformation that takes place in your life, which is called sanctification. Your justification is purely by grace. Grace and grace alone, right? So no works, you don't have to do a thing to receive that justification. But if in fact you've truly been justified, what will happen? I will cause you to walk in my precepts and my statutes, according to Ezekiel 36, right? He says, I will remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my precepts and my statutes. Okay. All right, so we've learned a lot. So those are just a few. A little bit of a review, because we've only got a couple more weeks. I don't want you to forget the things that we've been learning little by little. And we're building on these as we go through the whole book on the whole. So now let's dive into our chapter themes. And I'm going to do it slightly different. Instead of going through every paragraph on this, I want to start by just looking at major geographic locations, who our major people are, and then identifying the major event of each chapter this time. That's how I want to do it today, because otherwise it would take way too long to get through three chapters. So let's do chapter 21. And so uh, we have uh, actually three major geographic locations mentioned in this particular chapter. There's more than that mentioned, but three of them are major because they are the thing. It's like the, other, the others are places he's passing through on his way, right? So you can actually narrow it down to three, and let's do that. Where do we see uh, Paul in this chapter 21? One through six, where is he? Tyre, that's right. He's in Tyre. What happens in Tyre? What's going on there? Yes. And what is the major thing that's brought up about that visit? It says that they tell Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Right. So this is interesting. Okay. Okay. Now, so let's see if we can untangle this a little bit. Um, What do you think? was going on in the minds of uh, the believers in Tyre when they realized Paul was heading to Jerusalem. 
What do the people at Tyre apparently know about Jerusalem, about Paul's previous time there? And not only that, but not only Paul's previous time there, what happened to Jesus there? Right? What happened to Jesus in Jerusalem? He was crucified there. Who did he go before that he was crucified? That same council of, as far as the body of the council, the same council that Paul is eventually going to get brought before, right? So they, so these are believers entire. They know he's on his way back to Jerusalem. They know the hotbed that he's going into. And so what did they say to him? Don't go, don't go, don't go. Why do you, th- and, and they're doing this in the spirit. What is this speaking of? Are they saying that they had a revelation from God and God said to him, don't go? No, it is not. It is not what they are saying. And the reason we know that is because of everything else that's given to us information wise when you build the whole picture, right? So what has happened with Paul preceding this is super essential in getting the picture on this. What do we see about Paul previous to this? Yes, uh uh-huh, okay. So in Acts, go to Acts 20, verse 22 to 24. So we're going to jump ahead one chapter just in order to get this little piece of information here. But what do we see in in Acts 20? Um, I'm looking at 22 to 24. There might be other places. Okay, so how clearly does Paul know that he's been called by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem? Emphatically. As a matter of fact, every other reference that we see about Paul heading to Jerusalem, how determined does he look? Yes. Right. And he's willing to even do what if he has to at Jerusalem? To die. He's willing to even go to Jerusalem and die if necessary for the sake of the gospel. So Paul, and actually early on in Paul's conversion, back when Paul first became saved in Acts chapter 9, did he have indications even early on in his, in his faith walk that he, this was his life's journey in this new thing called faith in Christ Jesus? Yeah, and it's quite interesting if you think of the contrast between where, what he was before and what he was after. What was he doing before conversion? Persecuting the church, killing the Christians, right? Now Jesus called him and said, I'm, I'm going to show him how much he must what? Suffer for me and for my name's sake, right? So he's now going to do exactly what he was killing the others for, and he himself, like Stephen, will eventually become what? A martyr, and he knows this. He knows this how soon? At the very beginning of his faith walk. So there are some there are some truth markers in here that we can start to draw out here in Paul's journey. Let's let's just list the the. I'm not going to give you all the details. I'm just going to say uh, these are some of the points. Paul's ca- Paul's call, his calling, right? He understands that it's about to bear. Uh, that he is going to bear his own cross, right? And Kay had us go and look and look on this to see some comparisons 
between what happened in Paul's life and what Jesus did as the primary example that Paul was then following, right? How often does Paul say in his letters, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Follow my example because I'm following the example of Jesus himself. So um, in Luke uh, 9, this was day 4, page 72 of your homework, right? What, it, what happened with Jesus when, he, when you looked at those references? Let's see if I can find my references. Hold on. I have them here somewhere. <laughs> eh, wrong ways. What did you guys find there? What did Jesus say in Luke about his cross? Go to Luke 9.23. What does he say? Is that Luke 9? Yes. No, okay, 22. Go to 23. Okay, so here, Jesus early on said, this is what's going to happen to me, and if anyone wants to follow after me, he must what? Be willing to do this. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, is Jesus saying that every single one of us then will go to, go to some kind of suffering like this? Is that what he's saying? There you go. It's the be willing to. That's exactly what that's saying. He's saying you must deny yourself and pick up your cross. Now, what that cross looks like in your life is going to vary for every one of us. And, he does, and do it daily. That's true. But the, but the idea of picking up the cross is a, is a submission, understanding that there will be some kind of burden for each one of us to carry. And each of us, it will vary. And it certainly varies from generation to generation what the issues are. It varies from nation to nation what the issues are. If you live, if you were a Coptic Christian living in Egypt, your life would be very different. How many of you just got chills going, yeah. Like, I do not want to be living in Egypt today. I don't want to live anywhere in in the Middle East today. Because what's happening to Christians there? They're losing their head. They're losing their lives. Their wives and their young daughters are being raped and pillaged, right? So their cross to bear for the sake of Christ is quite literally much like what we see in the Gospel of Acts where where, uh, the apostles, the early apostles, the early birthing of the church, you know, they, they had to endure these things. Paul scathed out of a scourging, didn't he? What's a scourging? It's a whipping. What happened to Jesus when he was put upon, before he was put upon the cross? He was scourged. Did anybody look that word up and to see the definition of that whip that's used? It's pretty gross, isn't it? I mean, it, that's enough to cringe, make you cringe, right? It does sound very painful. And actually, many people, according to what I read, they didn't live through it. It would kill them, Right. Yeah. The probability of not death is stop at 39 lashes. Right. 
And even, even that, there was no guarantee. A lot of people would not make it through those, depending upon where that lash landed and what it ripped through. If it hit a carotid artery in the neck and ripped your artery out, you'd be dead, right? All right, so um, now where was I going with this? Oh, Paul's call. Okay, so Paul, what, we, what Kay wanted us to do with, as we looked this week in our homework was to try to draw some parallels between Jesus... What ha- literally happened to Jesus, how Jesus is the example that all of us are to follow, right? And then look at it in parallel to what we see demonstrated through the life of Paul. And, and quite honestly, how close is Paul's life and the things that happened to him to what happened with Jesus? Very similar, right? I mean, he didn't go to the cross, as far as we know, uh, uh, but what we do see in here is him uh, suffering these severe beatings, people stoning him, people chasing him out of town from place to place. What else do we see? Opposition from the Jews. Uh, huge opposition from the Jews. These people were venomous and they were plotting. What were they plotting to do? To kill him. What did they plot to do to Jesus? To kill him. See the parallels in there again. Um, we see... Uh, Paul then uh, go, once he gets to Jerusalem and he actually gets arrested, actually being arrested was probably a lifesaver for him, right? Unopposed to Jesus, there, there might be an actual contrast. Paul's salvation was his arrest. Jesus's arrest led to what? Led to his death. But yet, who did he go before and what transpired during that time was very, very similar, right? Yeah. If he hadn't been arrested and then appealed to Caesar or whatever, he probably would have just been, you Yeah, it was very interesting because in, okay, someone go into 2311 and look at that verse, 2311. Someone else look up 1921 because I want you to see here how these two things are going on at, you know, in the progression of events here. What did he say in 1921, that which is previous to his arrest and so forth, right? 1921, Diane. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Okay, very interesting. So even before he goes to this... this um, uh, bondage in Jerusalem, where we are now in these chapters 21, 22, 23, he apparently already knew that he had been called to go on to Rome. There's no other, there's no record of us being told of Jesus speaking this to him through the spirit or Jesus appearing to him and speaking this to him previously, right? But he apparently already knew about it. Back in 19, he says, I must go to Rome, right? Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. We don't see any record in the scripture about a parallel with Paul. Well, a little bit we do. Let's go to 2311, okay? A little bit. It, it doesn't expound on it in the same degree it does with Jesus, but it, the implication is there. So what is seen in, in chapter 2311? But on the night 
Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome. Okay, so Jesus appears to him. Now, you tell me, why might this be? be, Of course, obviously, Jesus just showing up. (laughs) That would be great comfort, right? I mean, you, you know, if you've got the God of universe on your side, the resurrected one on your side, and he's coming to you and he's saying to you, take courage. And we've seen many examples, and we didn't look at them, but other examples in Scripture where the Spirit speaks to people. Or in the Old Testament, God was speaking to say, be courageous and, and have courage, right? Joshua, for instance, is one of those. So here we see Jesus show up and say, take courage. But then what is it that he says to him that really gives him courage? You must go where? To Rome. What does that tell him about his momentary peril? He's not going to die before he gets to Rome, at least. Now, whether he'll die at Rome or not is not revealed to him. But what, what has he known already this, at this point in his journeys? That he's going to go to Jerusalem and face what? Persecutions and afflictions. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him there exactly. In other words, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. Before, he didn't know whether he was going to live or die in Jerusalem. Back, back in 19 when he mentions this. But now Jesus appears to him in the moment while he's at Jerusalem in bondage, and he says, take courage, you must also witness for me in, in Rome. So he gives him confidence that whatever's going to happen in these next few hours and days that he's there, he's going to make it through it because he has to go. He's, and he doesn't just say, uh, it'd be nice if you go to Rome and manage to get a witness in there, but rather he says what? You must go to Rome. So it's emphatic that Paul goes to Rome at some point. We, we don't know. I don't think there's a record of him going there, but we know he goes based on this verse. Jesus appeared and said, you must. So we know he did. The amazing thing is, it brings up, um, I think it was 2 Corinthians, but um, his momentary life affliction. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, I'm absolutely, that is absolutely true. And yet, you know what's really interesting? It's like we just said, you're to pick up your own cross daily and and bear the one that God gives to you. I think about people who go through whatever their afflictions are. And they consider them light and momentary. We have a friend right now, um, and we've had several who've gone through this, actually. This is not just the first. But I'm thinking of Linda Henson right now, who every time I get an email from her, she says, I am so filled with joy, and there is such a peace in my heart that God is in this. She is just so delighted to be the witness. She says, I am seizing every moment of opportunity to witness to the people who come into my room, to the doctors that I engage with, to the other patients I am speaking to who may not have Jesus and are going through what I'm going through, right? So she has picked up her cross daily. Her momentary uh, afflictions, light afflictions, she calls them. To me, I'd be going, (gasps) right? Only because I'm on this side of it and it's not me yet. But when it is me, do you think the Spirit will give me that confidence to do that? Think of the people in our midst. I'm thinking another one was Laurie Skipton who went through it. Remember how joyful she was? She came in here, even under chemo, all dressed up, makeup on, cute as a bug, no hair, and her head covered with a scarf. She looked so cute. Joy, 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 smile on her face all the time. And I'm thinking, Lord, please let me have that kind of delight in this knowledge. Can you see this in Paul? 
Okay, so so we see Paul had a calling to bear his own cross, and he knew it. He was confident in it. He knew where he knew where he was going. He knew he was called to number one witness, and number two to suffer. Right. Okay, so that was his calling. Then we see also with him that his determination. And in, in that we see him um, purpose in his spirit to go to, he was purposed to go. In his case, to Jerusalem. Now, each of us have our own calling, whatever it is, to go and do whatever. I don't know what your calling is. Maybe it's to bear up under other, maybe it's financial stresses. Maybe it's a marriage issue. Maybe it's a very difficult job. Maybe it's um, uh, depression or other physical ailments. Or, I mean, it could be a variety of things. Or you could be called into the mission field where your life is truly in peril, right? For us as, um, as um, Christians in America, I think the biggest danger we face is apathy. It's not being fervent enough in our faith walk, whatever it is. You may not be called to do something what we would call dramatic. I can tell you my personal testimony is, is vanilla. You know, it's milk toast. In comparison to many of the testimonies of other people. And yet I can also tell you that my testimony has mattered and made a difference in the lives of many people that I've met along my way. Because people can relate to me and my situations and the things that I have personally experienced. Even my own daughter, right? Even my own children are, can relate to some of the things that have happened to me in my life and now have happened to them. And so they relate. So it doesn't matter what your testimony is. It doesn't matter what your journey is. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord, right? For it is the Lord Christ whom you are serving. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, is what Jesus says. Okay, so his calling and his determination, we saw that in Paul. He's committed to go and to do uh, the Lord's will. What about his fortitude? Now, let's talk about this a little bit. We got, we got off track on this. We'll get back to it, I promise. <laughs> His fortitude, is, it, um, it's tested, right? How is it tested? He is determined, but how is it tested? What kind of things happen that you can see him really struggling? Yeah, please don't go. So back to James's thing about the... The people saying that they were in the spirit urging him not to go, right? Well, and, 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 see, and, the, and that's the thing is it's saying it, the thing that bothered me about it was it says through the spirit. Right. You know, and so this is an error. You know, so they, I'm assuming that they were actually speaking through the spirit. Right. Maybe, I'm, my thought is maybe they were, maybe the spirit revealed to them what Paul was going to have to go through. And they were saying, no, 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 don't do it. Maybe. Even though. And Paul saw the same thing, but he was like, no, no, I have to do it. Right. Okay, so that would be one explanation. Maybe kind of, maybe kind of similar to when Jesus was 
tell his disciples, I have to go up to the cross. And they're, and they're saying, no, 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 you don't have to do it. Bingo, James. You got it now. That's exactly where you want to go with this. Because what you're saying is, did this not happen to Jesus when Jesus said he was going to go to the cross? Right. right? And one of the things we talked about a lot when we did the Gospel of John was, why were his disciples so blind? I mean, couldn't they see it? I mean, he kept telling them, I am the Christ, I am he. And they kept seeing all the miracles. And I'm thinking, why couldn't they figure this out? Well, what did we in the end kind of decide about that? Do you guys remember for those of you who did that with me? They were thinking on an earthly basis. They were looking at somebody they were fond of, they loved. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to lose. Right, okay. So, James, there is one part of that that distinction. And on the part of Jesus not opening their eyes to fully comprehend it all, why would he not have done that? That's, well, not, not only were they not ready, but what about Jesus's work? Was it finished? What would they have done had they known and really believed it? Probably tried to stop it and maybe even lost their life along the way. And God had a plan for them. They were going to birth his church. He was preparing them to do that as eyewitnesses of all these things. So, to. I know, exactly. There was that issue too. But their eyes had not been fully opened yet. Do you remember when Jesus returns in his, uh, after his resurrection? How many times they, the people he appeared to did not recognize him at first? Do you remember that? What was the reason for that? What was, what was Jesus trying to draw out of those he was appearing to? What were they supposed to be relying on about the death and uh, the death of Jesus? Their faith. He was drawing faith out of them. The first thing he says on the road to Emmaus to those two men is, what do you remember about what, what was said about what would happen, right? And then eventually, as he talked to them about the prophets, which is what he's wanting them to rely on, what did the prophets say would happen? Who was he to be? Do you believe it? Do you believe that was him? Do you think that Jesus was the one who God sent? Was he the son of David? Did he come from the the right tribe? Did he come at the right time in history? Was he of the line of David? So he gives them all these things, and then he makes himself known to them. All of a sudden, their eyes are open. Because now he's confirming to them, it was me. You need to rely on faith. He was teaching them to walk by faith. Know the scriptures. Know what's true. Because guess what? In the church today, do we have Jesus walking before us? What do we rely on in the church? Faith. Believing God's word is true and that Jesus is the one who fulfilled it. It's by faith you walk. So right from the moment at the, at the tomb when the women did not recognize him, when the apostles did not all recognize him right away, when those disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him right away, he, he delayed their recognition of him until he had an opportunity to teach them faith. Walk by faith. What do you know? What was told? What was the prophecy? Did it happen? Do you believe it? Then he reveals himself. Right? All right. So, now why did I say all that? I can't remember. <laughs> we got off on a tangent. <laughs> all right. So, Paul's fortitude is tested because here we have these people who, in their spirit, their concern is for their brother, right? They recognize he's going into danger. Now, why do you think God is doing this in the life of Paul at this time? Has Paul, has Paul been called to go back to Jerusalem? 
Yes, apparently it's very clear. We've seen it. He knows it. He's confirmed it. He's told them I'm going. I have to go. I, and early on in his, in his faith walk, even at, from the moment of his salvation, Jesus said, you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And he knows that and he's bowed his knee to it. So he has picked up his cross, but now he's encountering people that he loves. Susan may come to me and say, no, no, don't do this. You're going to get in trouble. The, the church is going to be mad at you. They're going to kick you out. They're going to, they're going to, you know, beat you, throw you in prison. And what is her intention? Only good. It's only good. It's because she loves me. And in the spirit, she's seeing where I'm, head, I'm headed. The spirit has revealed to her that's where I'm headed. And in the spirit, the spirit has said to her, yeah, she's going to get arrested when she goes to Jerusalem. So they are speaking through the spirit. But so why is all this happening? What purpose does it, does it result in in the life of Paul himself? Yeah, it's a test of his faith. Are you going to be obedient in spite of the difficulties? Have you truly picked up your cross? And even what, are there times in you and I's life that you and I have to also do the same thing? Say, you know what? I know this is going to cause me a, a headache. I can't tell you how many times I come in to teach a class where I know the subject I'm covering is going to cause a headache, right? Somebody's not going to like it. It might step on somebody's toes. But you know what? What does Ezekiel say? You tell them whether they want to hear it or not, right? You tell them what you're supposed to remember Ezekiel, Susan. A lot. That's a good generic answer, Susan. Oh, nice, smooth. Yeah, good one, Susan. She's just like Paul at Ephesus. Let me tell you. Yes. Oh, good. And a better, a better translation probably would have been compelled by the Spirit. Right, right. And see, to me, that takes me back to Ezekiel 36. He says, I'm going to place my Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my precepts and my ways. I believe that if the Spirit has spoken to me, it does not matter what the obstacles are. I had better be obedient to the Spirit, Right. Even if you know it might put you in danger, now you got to be careful to listen to the Spirit. Make sure it's truly the Spirit, right? What are the two best ways, though, that God actually speaks to us in His Word? Through Scripture and through prayer. That's right. Those are the two most definitive ways that God really speaks to us. But occasionally, He also speaks to us through our friends, right? Through people who love us, through people that we respect. However, what must we do? With that information, what did Paul do with this warning that the people gave him? He had to weigh it, didn't he? Against what God had already told him. How many times? Several times. He had been affirmed and affirmed. And what's really cool is the next thing that happens in this event is Agabus, right? What happens with Agabus? Let's see, where are we? We're in 21. Yes, okay, because the others are saying, no, Paul, please don't go, right? And then Agabus shows up, and who is Agabus? He's a prophet. By the way, did you also notice there's the other daughters that are mentioned? But then nothing else is said about them. What was that about? Yeah, what was that about? Does anybody know? 
<laughs> yeah, there you go. It is. Right, so it's point of reference to contextually said, okay. Yeah, okay. Right. And for us in the New Testament, what do we learn about the, the concept of, of prophets in the New Testament church? Are prophets still true today? Is it, is it a spiritual gifting that God has given to the church for today? Yes. Okay, so... And he's and by the way, P.S. He's given it to women. Yes. Can we hang on to that? We're gonna do that one in spiritual gifts. I'm sorry, Jay. That's a really lengthy one. But but in essence, it's it's to, for us today. It's the speaking of those things which God has already established in His Word. But the prophet has a, a very clear vision of of what the problem is, what the root of the sin is, and he brings that to the surface. His, his major job, look at Ezekiel, was to expose sin and say, look, you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. Stop. It's different from the teacher because the teacher's job is more to teach, you know, the principles and the doctrines and the precepts. My job, if I stood up here and said, boy, we've got this going on in the world today, and I would hit on all the hot topics. And I would say, these are sins. This is what God says about it. Church, stop. Especially if you have a church that's engaged in any of those things. If you have a church that's engaged in permitting homosexuality as a part of the church itself, especially if it's your church leaders, right, and they're in there, then the prophet should stand up and say, no, this is, thus saith the Lord concerning this subject. That's what the prophet's role is. The prophet's role is to, pur- to purge and refine the church. I, I wish I had time to do it more. I'm going to hit on it very slightly when we do our week. After I talk to Rob, I want to make sure I get on board with Rob correctly. Um, um, but I have already written, I have already have a whole outline, a paper done on teaching the, the, a little more clearly about the sign gifts that we're looking at here, just to tantalize you a little bit, but also to clarify that subject a little bit more, which is why I opened with a little bit of that today. Uh-huh. Uh, the house they were staying at was Philip, right? Yes. That's right. That's exactly right. That's right. That's exactly right. So it's just setting context for who Philip is and the people that, that uh, Paul is affiliating with and who he's staying with. That's all it's doing. It's giving it point of reference. And another thing that's really cool, anytime you're reading a book of history, the naming of names by name, which are verifiable, in that era. See, if these things were written under inspiration of God and they were put out there for the, the populace to read, and if any of them were in error, then somebody would come back and say, that's not true. That person doesn't exist. This isn't a true fact, right? It would be a way of, of a sort of a checks and balance thing on keeping the purity of what is true gospel and what is true, truly not. So by him naming a specific person and certain daughters and giving them names and, and qualification markers, then it's again, again, it affirms this as a truthful and accurate writing. Do you remember what Luke said early with Theophilus in the, in the book of Luke? Because we know this is volume two of a two-volume writing. He wrote Luke first, then he wrote Acts, correct? And Theophilus, when he wrote to Theophilus in Luke 1, he opens it up by saying he's writing to him an exact account. 
right? So here's one of those moments when the exact account is validated in some way, validated in some way, by giving specific names of certain people in a certain place. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. That's really cool. That's good. All right. Okay, so um, so his fortitude is tested. We see him being warned at Tyre, right? He was warned there. That, that was in 21.4. We also see him, uh, the prophet tells him, this is more a declarative statement, right, it, uh, of what's going to go, what's going to happen in 2111. He follows it in that next verse about, I think it's in 2111. Let me see. Go 12. No, go up to 13, 2113. And what does he say there? Who was it? Was that you, Diane, that said that verse earlier? So one of you did. Yeah. I think that's kind of his Gethsemane moment, if you will. There you go. This is him, just as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And also even Peter. Think of the time with Peter when he makes that declaration, thou art the Christ. And yet then he tries to urge Jesus not to do something at one point. And Jesus says to Peter, what? Get behind me, Satan. So here we see this is Paul's moment and something that's shadowing as Paul sort of follows in the same kind of footsteps as what Jesus did. So here he's being urged by uh, people who love him and he's being told declaratively by a prophet, this is what's going to happen to you. So now he knows for sure, right? Um, and then he's, his heart is broken as they're tearfully saying, please don't go, please don't go, please don't go, right? This is at, this one was at Tyre, this one was at Caesarea. Okay, all right, so he's tested. Um, And then he goes on in 2113 saying, but I'm ready to be bound and even to die for, for the cross. So here again, he ultimately picks up his cross, doesn't he? All right, Um, then we see again his obedience because then in chapter 21, we see him go right into Jerusalem, right? And exactly what he was told was going to happen does happen. But what's very interesting is the, the the precluding things that happened before that. When he first gets there, he goes to the apostles, right? And the apostles, again, warn him, look, these people, these Jewish believers that are very zealous for the law, I mean, they are out to get you, Paul, right? And so they devise a plan that they think is going to help to appease these rumors and these, this anger about Paul. Now, what is it that sh- we see in this situation then in Jerusalem that has raised up again? And it has come up before back in, was it chapter 15, I think? What is it? Because these are Jews who do what? Believe. So they are believers. And this is amazing, isn't it? Because when you see what follows this, can you see how a believer now getting on board with the rest of the Jews in the town for the sake of their zealousness for what? 
for the law. Now, we're not talking about uh, the sacrifices at the temple kind of things. We're talking about, well, it just says in general, the customs. But one thing in particular is brought up, which is circumcision. No, circumcision. Remember that they have to be circumcised. Did we see that before that someone said they were Jews that came down to can't remember now where it was, but they, they said they had to be circumcised in order to be, to come into faith. And then what did, this was at the end of, of Paul's second missionary journey, and it actually put his journey to an end, and he ended up going back to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, what happened? That council met, and what was the decision of the council? You do not have to be circumcised to be saved. However, they did come out with a list of things, didn't they? Remember? There was a list of like four things they said, but it would be good, it would be well if they would comply with these things. And they listed four things, right? So let's go back now and let's look here in 20... um, Okay, because this is really interesting, I think. Why are they really upset with Paul? What is the charge? Kind of sounds like it has, it's an attack against their, their customs and, and their social order that they've always felt was God endowed, God instilled. And it's true, it was, right? Right, which makes sense then why we all in our ABF this week when we got into Ephesians, there Paul is again when he writes the book of Galatians, he's having to correct the same issue again and again and again apparently. It it took a while for it to be resolved. Can you understand that it would? And when you look in the, um, particularly in Acts, what we see is a time of transition. And so a lot of things which right now look confusing to us because it's kind of like, uh, duh. Well, of course, right? But for them, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that simple and, and, and clean cut because they were in that moment of having just come out from under the law into this new thing. And these church doctrines, these subjects that we're looking at here in, in um, Acts now as ancient history was all brand new to them. And they were just learning how to live and walk under this new covenant, right? They had been under an old covenant. Now they're under a new. And so Paul is eventually going to write a lot of letters. Romans, first and second Thessalonians, he writes first and second Corinthians, he writes Galatians and Ephesians. <coughs> Excuse me. Right, and he does it for <coughs> for a different reason, but okay, so we see then that he's saying basically they're mad at Paul. Because he is, they say that he is teaching the Jews to forsake Moses. And then they, I'm sorry, I'm choking. <clears throat> then they mention two things. He's, that he's telling people not to circumcise their children. And he's telling people not to walk according to the customs. Now, was this true? No, it wasn't. It actually was not. And what's really interesting is the very next verse. He says this in Acts 21. What then is to be done, right? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this. 
this that we tell you. And he comes up with this little plan about how he's going to go purify himself, how he's going to, in other words, he's going to do, quote, a custom that's of their people. One that is, by the way, benign. It doesn't, ma- it doesn't pertain or violate in any way the new covenant. It's kind of like the idea today, what, how I, for me, well, how I related to it is, it's kind of like saying, do I take grape juice or wine for communion? It's, it's a benign thing. You can do either or because it's, it's symbolic. Well, no, it depends on who you talk to. But if you, under, if you actually understand, it is, it's benign. So for Paul, who really does understand, what they're asking him to do about this particular um, uh, custom, is, it's a benign custom that does not violate the new covenant. Would it be more similar to like a Christian saying, I'm going to keep kosher? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's good and it's healthy for me, so I think I'll do it. Yeah, maybe as long as they know it's not giving them salvation, then oh, yes, okay. So that would be something that would be benign. However, could you go and start making sacrifices? No. Uh, no, that would be a big problem. Okay, so that's the scenario there. Did everybody catch that, that this was a benign thing? They were just saying, do this one thing. This will show that you walk according to the law and that that it's... Um, that that you're not rebellious against the, the customs of Moses, right? Then he says, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote. Did you catch that? If you didn't, put a block around that. I've got to have a tissue again. My nose is, <clears throat> I choked and now I'm dripping here. I'm sorry. Hang on a sec. Um, okay, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote. So what is, he, what is he doing right there? What are the apostles doing for, for Paul right there? I mean, the Jews are all mad at him saying he's telling people don't, you know, that they don't have to do certain things. But what is the apostles actually doing right here? We're with you. And there you go. That's exactly right. They're taking ownership of that decision that was made earlier at that first council meeting. We are the ones that said that the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised, right? Because that's the number one complaint they had, that they were saying, don't, don't circumcise your children. And so what he's doing is he's taking ownership of this. Yes. Of course. Could be, although that part is not brought up to us. But later, Paul. But later, Paul writes another book. Which one? Hebrews. And he, well, we don't know if it's Paul that wrote it. You're right. But later, somebody writes Hebrews in order to address this very issue about don't keep going back to the old system because if you do, you're crucifying the Christ over and over again. So that gets handled later. In this account, he's focusing on one thing, traditions and customs, which can be benign. Another, would you say that circumcision is an okay thing for us to do today for our sons if we so choose? Absolutely. Why? Because it's a benign custom. It does not violate your... Do you have to be circumcised? No. 
Okay, so the, it's a benign thing, and that's what Paul is looking at here with this oath thing. Taking an oath, shaving their head, paying a certain tribute or whatever. Go do this, Paul, because this will appease the people, and they'll see that you're not against the customs of Moses. Right? And he says, and by the way, about that issue with the Gentiles, we are the ones that wrote that letter. We, the apostles, we take ownership of this responsibility of making that council decision as the, as the council of, at Jerusalem, we made that decision. So they're removing it off of Paul and taking it onto themselves where it should be, actually. And it was an issue that had already been addressed, and, and it, it should have never fall, fallen on Paul to begin with. So they were trying to own that. But, but what happened? Even though that was all said and done, we see that Paul is innocent. We see that the apostles see Paul is innocent. The people are still angry. He's in the middle of doing that. And what happens on day, um, when the seven days of this plan were almost over in, in verse 27? <laughs> yep, those Jews from Asia. And, and Asia is present-day Turkey. What happened when they see Paul then at the temple? They get livid because they've seen Paul with who? some other Gentiles previously. And so what did they do? They jump to a conclusion that Paul is yet again violating the laws of Moses, right? And they get the whole crowd stirred up. Now, who is it that stirs up the crowd? They identify them. Uh, you know what? You might be right on that. I, I, had a, I had jumped to a conclusion that it was the Judaizers, but because, pardon? Yeah, earlier, these Jews from Asia, where this first conflict came up with Paul about the circumcision issue, they were from that part of Asia, Lyd- Lydia, Derby, Lystra, all that, right? And they had gone into Jerusalem with him, so I just connected the two. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think it probably doesn't really matter. What we do know is eventually both are coming against him, right? Both the believing Jews, because as a matter of fact, that's who the apostles say was the real source of the problem here, right? The apostles identify them right away at the beginning in verse 20 and says, the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and not to walk after the customs. So what are we going to do about this? Well, then the next statement is, and the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd. And so so to me, I said the crowd was the Jews, and the, the, uh, the Jews from Asia were the believing Jews, the Judaizers, but I'm not sure. In any event, we know that all the Jews eventually get upset. And we know that the source of this whole issue started with believing Jews, who we now call Judaizers, because we now understand by definition what they are. Does everybody understand that definition of Judaizers? Is those who, they were the Jews who believed that, yes, you're saved by grace, but 
but you're kept by the law, right? So that they would they add to uh, the the um, the gospel of grace that there were works that had to be done, which is exactly what we saw back in chapter 15 in Acts, where he said, "Yes, you can be saved, but first you have to get circumcised." Right? And Paul said, no, 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 no. And their big stink grows up. And then they end up coming to Jerusalem to settle that. Okay, so we're doing really good, guys. We're getting through a lot of great information. So we see his, his uh, obedience, his, his fortitude was tested. And then we see Paul being obedient. Even in the face of all that was going on with him, we see he, he was so confident um, Paul attempts to appease the the Jews. Okay, with that vow and money custom, correct? Oops, that shouldn't have gotten there. And then the, at the end of it, though, although he's obedient and, and he does make an attempt to appease them, which I think is another good learning thing as Christians today for us in application of how we are going to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And that is that we need to understand that to the best of our ability, we do need to be at peace with all men. God, scripture teaches us that, right? Even Romans, he goes into that. To do your part, if you can, if at all possible, be at peace with all men. But, and that's what Paul was doing here. This is what the apostles were trying to do here. But in the end, it wasn't successful. Okay, so it ended up not being. But do you, was there a plan in that by God? Had God always intended for him to end up arrested? Because why? What was going to happen once he got arrested? It was going to go to Rome. Number one, it gave him opportunity to witness first to who? To those Jews, the crowds there in Jerusalem, right? That was the first group. Then the next group was, he talked to? The, the Jerusalem council, right? The, the Sanhedrin, right? And then what we saw at the close of our, our week study in, in 23, I think it was, the end of 23, is that then he's taken secretly by rescue, right, off to uh, Caesarea where he is going to see Felix, right, eventually, the governor Felix. So next week we're going to see that part of it. So he's, um, he, although he attempts to appease them, he then falls into the hands of both Judaizers and Jews and the Romans. Okay? He ends up being in chains. Bound in chains. Just as <laughs> just as Agabus had told him. Right? Okay. So that gives us his obedience. Then the last thing we, we're going to talk about is um, his innocence. Well, I do love the, part, the, the other point about Jesus appearing to him, however. So we see Paul is strengthened. By Jesus, right? 
And then we see Paul is innocent. So we talked about that. That number one, the count the um, the apostles took responsibility for the the decision. I don't know how we want to put that. I'm going to put it this way. They took it, in other words, contrast it with Paul is not rogue. I hope that's spelled right. Not rogue. Um, Is it right? R-O-G-U-E? Okay, got it. That doesn't look like an R, though, huh? Okay, I just, you know, because to me, in a way, that one section in there where it's showing them trying to come up with a way for him to appease the crowds and then them taking responsibility for that decision that was made that they don't have to be circumcised. That was their decision as the council and as the leaders, as the apostles. That was their job, and they took responsibility for that. Paul had not gone rogue, and the people in that city had come against him as if he had. And, and the, the council was saying, no, he's not. And at the end of what we read this week in our homework, what did um, the Roman commander at Jerusalem decide? What was his letter? The, and I can't remember the guy's name. He was the Roman commander. Yeah. Okay, okay I'm just going to put Roman commander... To Felix, right? Paul. Paul is what? Yep. So Paul is basically innocent in all of this. He says that's in twenty three, twenty nine, right? Boy, does that sound familiar. Again, so we're back to this whole section here that we've covered today, and, and used it to kind of as a catalyst to to go through this whole uh, lesson that we looked at has been used by chaos as to kind of parallel with the life of Jesus. And boy, you just over and over, you just see the parallels there. It's just so obvious that it's crazy. And in doing that, then what we say to ourselves is, self, have I picked up my cross, the one that Jesus has assigned to me, whatever that is, however benign and vanilla it may look to the world, the cross that I bear is still a significant cross. God has called me to this life, to this work that I'm doing. So in my life, in my relationship with my husband, in my relationship with my friends and my family, in my relationship in my church, in my relationships in my community, how, whatever I'm doing, am I picking up a cross and bearing it for Christ? Am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to even endure hardship or difficulties? Am I willing to work hard, work long hours, stay up late if necessary, cook lots of meals, cook, clean somebody's bathroom if necessary, ta- you know, take meals? Am I willing to babysit children? Am I willing to put up with wayward children who don't know the Lord yet? Am I willing to... Um, Witness to my neighbors who are rude, crude, and socially, sociably unacceptable, right? Whatever it is, am I doing all these things in my personal life in a way that God is glorified? The cross that we each bear might seem 
insignificant in our eyes, but one day God says, I will take your life and I will put it through the fire of refining. And what comes out that is not burned up, you are rewarded. Isn't that an amazing thing? God saves you by grace. God gives you gifts to serve him with. All he asks you and I to do is to be faithful. He gives us his spirit, which causes us to be motivated to do it. We get through our lives. We do it. We, sometimes we do good. Sometimes we don't do good. God burns off all the trash and says, now I'm just going to reward you for what's good left. That is like a win-win, right? You win, win, win with Jesus Christ. And he provides everything we need at the end. And I, this is what Paul saw in his life. Even though Paul's is really dramatic, Paul's looks really intense. And most of us think, I could never do that. I'll bet many of us in this room who think about going through a cancer scenario in our lives think, I could never do that joyfully like so-and-so has. But the, but the reality is, yes, you could. If you have the spirit of God in you, if you will bow your knee to him, and if you will do all the things that you do whatsoever you're doing, doing it unto the Lord joyfully, yes, you can. Right? Doesn't mean you do it perfectly. Just means you desire to please the Lord. Paul apparently was in need of Jesus' presence in that evening that he had been arrested. And Jesus appeared to him to give him comfort and courage. And God does that for every one of us. The great thing is, is we carry his word with us right here every day. It's available it's as close as your fingertips allow it to be. It, with, our, with, with the word of God being on cell phones, you can be anywhere and pick up your cell phone and Google it. I love that. What a great lesson this was today. But you know they had to be there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 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 You know, the only one I see in there is in that 21 where he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I mean, he had to, there was this in his heart, he's watching them cry for him and say, please don't go. And he's like, you know, why are you doing this? Right? So, I mean, there's that aspect of it, but, but yet it's followed with, for I'm not only ready to be bound, but even to die. He was very confident in what God had spoken to him in his heart. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. He is always there. That's right. It is. So title, that. let me get the titles in of our three chapters. Chapter 21. Uh, what did we title 21? Okay, Paul, okay. Now, when you observed chapter 21, we know that the end of it, the conclusion of it, is that he gets bound at Jerusalem. But along the way, we see him go to these three locations, Tyre, and then um, Caesarea, and then Jerusalem, right? So would you say that there's a, a large emphasis on the journey part? 
right? And the events along the way are these testings that he gets put under through the friends that love him and through Agabus who then tells him, yep, you are, you're going to get bound, right? Um, So in the title, I think it would also behoove us to somehow indicate that this is a journey that he's on to go to Jerusalem to be in in chains. So it's really, 21's focus is about the journey. And in that journey, we see Paul you know, his experience of picking up his cross and following the Lord, right? Okay, so I put uh, Paul's journey to chains at Jerusalem. That covers pretty much what Craig just said as well, okay? All right, so then in 22 and 23, where is he geographically? Where's the location? In both cases, he stays in Jerusalem. So in 22, what do we see him do Yes, exactly. So he's giving a defense or a testimony, right? Or a witness, whatever you want to title it. He's giving that that testimony to who? In 22, he's giving it to who? The crowd, right? To the Jerusalem crowd. So that's how you need to title that one. It's to the Jerusalem crowd in 22. In 23, then, he again gives a witness, but this time it's to who? To the council, to the Jewish uh, council at Jerusalem. So, and in all three cases, then on your observation worksheet, you're going to see that that he is um, in Jerusalem. This whole segment here becomes Jerusalem. Now, one of my points that we didn't get to do, and we're out of time, but if you timeline this, I looked at my chart, which I had sent out to you guys a long time back. It's been several weeks ago. But th- there's a... Um, yeah. Where is it? If I can find it. Uh, here it is. Timeline of Paul's life. And in there on the top section, it shows where the different epistles maybe were written. This is something we talked about. But it's really cool to kind of timeline this and, and say, where did Paul end up writing these different letters? Like Galatians, for instance, which is uh, this, the subject then of... Um, being saved by grace is emphasized in that particular writing. And also the unity of Jew and Gentile being in one body, right? So you might want to do a timelining. I have put it on the, this chart that I, that I did mine on, which is my, my at-a-glance chart so far. We're getting close to the end. We've only got four more chapters and two more, two more lessons and we'll be done. But you might want to look at this chart that I sent out to you before. Does everybody have it still? Okay. You might want to pull this out and somehow line it in here to see where did he write different letters in relationship to what we're looking at in Acts. And there is some controversy on some of them, but I just say you need to logically think it through. When might he have written, for instance, Galatians or... um, Ephesians, for instance, is another one, and Romans, because what is the major subject in those, and how have those issues come up in the birthing of the church so far that he would write back to those places and say, let me clarify something, right? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, show me. It's page 171. So page 171 of your, in your appendix, 
right, would be a chart that Kay gave us. I do remember that chart too. So you might want to take that and somehow incorporate that into your at-a-glance chart so that you see where those books may have been written because it's insightful. I, I know it was just a great woohoo moment for me yesterday in class when I went, oh my gosh, I know when this was probably written, although it's, it is controversial about when it was written, but I think it, it fits in there pretty good in my mind, that it, it fell after the events that happened in, in uh, Acts happened, that he then has to write back to these churches and address these things. And what we see is he addressed it once back in 15, and here it is in 22, or 21, and, uh, 21, and it's raised its ugly head again, and it never really quite got resolved. Oh, is it? Awesome. Did you hear that? At the beginning of Galatians, the, the chart, okay, the chart that, that Carol just brought to our attention, which is on page 171, is also in your inducted Bible study Bible at the opening part of Galatians. So that's really good. Galatians chapter one. Awesome. Well, y'all did a great job. What a good